Heavenly Father, we pray that you will now open our eyes and ears as we have sung. Pray that you will teach us and pray that you'll help us to have a clear understanding of the claims of Jesus and the offering of Jesus towards us. Amen. Just occasionally, an artist breaks through and loads of people know the artist's work. And one of the artists, one of the few artists that breaks through at the moment is a guy called Banksy. If you don't know Banksy, he's a graffiti artist. Uh, he goes around, he, um, they're quite rare. I think they're quite witty, quite intelligent, beautifully constructed piece of work, but he will spray stuff on walls or public buildings or telephone kiosks. And these things sell for tens of thousands of pounds. Um, Black, white, grey, an occasional highlight of colour. They're quick, and nobody knows who Banksy is. He's anonymous. Here's one. I don't know if you know this particular piece of work by Banksy. If you can't make it out, let me describe it to you. It's a familiar image from Christian art for over 2,000 years. The picture of Jesus hanging on a cross, being crucified, crown of thorns, halo, nails through his hands. But what he has in his hands are shopping bags with little parcels tied up with pink ribbon. There's a Christmas stick of rock on the left-hand side. There's, a, I think, a Mickey Mouse popping out of one of the shopping bags, a bottle of Prosecco. I wonder what you think about that. Are you looking at that thinking, that's really inappropriate, to be showing in church, Chris. That's close to being blasphemous. Or are you thinking, actually, that's quite profound in terms of what we have done as a culture to Jesus? That for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying what it is that Jesus comes to bring, and we've turned it into spending at Christmas. It's called Christ with shopping bags. And it's meant to feel as slightly awkward. Awkward about having commercialized Jesus, having trivialized Jesus. And I think Banksy makes us say, well, have we? Have we done that? Have we How could we tell? What does it mean to take Jesus seriously? Can we lose the image? Because we <laughs> might be breaking copyright. Um, in our little series at the moment, we are looking through a couple of chapters of Luke's life of Jesus, where Jesus is basically talking the whole time. We have, in terms of the words we've been using, we've been giving Jesus the microphone. And we've made it really unmissably shocking pink because Jesus is unmissable in what he's saying, unmistakable, and he makes us feel uncomfortable. And you've already heard Christiana read our reading for us, and you've might have been shifting in your seat slightly. Let, let me give you my permission, my position on this. I am not going to denounce anybody this morning, okay? I'm not, I'm, I haven't got the big finger. I'm going to go, ha-ha, <laughs> Elaine, have I got your number? I'm not doing the denounce, okay? So my job is simply to take that microphone and hold it and to let Jesus speak. 
And if I'm going to denounce anybody, the first person and the only person I'm going to denounce is me. Okay, so we've got that position clear. I'm not, I'm not doing a telling off here, but I want Jesus to stand clear. And today's section is really obvious, isn't it? It's easy to understand, but it is not easy to live with. It's a little bit difficult. Open up your Bible if you've closed it or flip open your phone. We're in Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 54. And Jesus, verse 54, is speaking to the crowd, not just his bunch of close disciples, but to a wider group of people. And he's got basically two questions and a word with a sharp edge. Two questions and a word with sharp edges. The questions are these. End of verse 56. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? And verse 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? And the word with sharp edges is hypocrites. Now, just to clear a bit of muck off that one, we we normally think (coughs) hypocrite means someone who's a fake, a bit of an actor. And normally it does. When Luke is writing his gospel, he tends to have a particular meaning on it. And for him, it just means a deliberately foolish person. Someone who is knowingly, stubbornly stupid, who is willful and culpable. And I said the word had sharp edges, especially when it's facing us, isn't it? So here's the first question, and Jesus leads into it with some stuff about the weather forecast. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? In Israel, like today, wind from the west comes across the sea. In our case, it's the Atlantic. For them, it's the Med. But never mind, it brings rain. When something comes from the south, it comes across the desert, like us. You know what it's like in the summer when you go out and your car's covered in Sahara sand. Wind from the south is hot. North, cold, east, dry. It's blindingly obvious, isn't it? It works. That's how weather works. It's simple. We are not... Silly. And Jesus basically says, okay, well, if you're not silly, why can't you work me out? If you're not silly. He says, particularly, how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? You are, he says, clearly intelligent. You can work all sorts of stuff out. You can't work me out. And that's the clue in that word hypocrite. Because it means someone who's actually saying, I I choose not to, I don't want to, and I am deliberately refusing to understand, and I am deliberately missing out. Now, by the times, understanding the times, I don't think Jesus means that we should be doing the same thing, looking at our newspapers and trying to scrutinize what's going on and work out whether it's whoever it is for prime minister. He's talking about his times. And it's to do with him and understanding him. And then it's got echoes for today. I mentioned Glenn Scrivener's book earlier on. And it's things like this. 
High values in our culture today are things like tolerance and kindness and fairness and gentleness and loving your neighbor and loving your stranger and even loving your enemy. Where do you think these come from? Ancient Greece? Ancient Rome? Ancient Egypt? I don't think so. Do you find them as a natural outflowing from Marx or Dor Darwin or Freud or Jung? No. Of course not. They're a direct product of the teaching of Jesus. They're the fruit of Jesus' teaching in our Western culture. And Jesus says, but you, you, you don't want me. You want the fruit without the fruit tree. And people are saying willfully, they refuse to look at him. I, I saw a, really clear, a couple of really clear examples uh, a week ago. Um, Sharon and I took a sneaky break, a sneaky city break, and we went off to Istanbul. It was great fun. I'll tell you all about it later. I'm a bit of a, an Istanbul geek at the moment. But sitting on the plane, flying to Istanbul, I watched a movie called Operation Mincemeat. Anybody seen it? It's, it's a new version of, a, of, a, of an older film. It's about a moment in the Second World War where the Allies were trying to deceive Hitler about where a big invasion of southern Europe was going to occur. And they did this grotesque thing um, of finding a dead body who, and pretending that that dead body had died as a pilot in the sea and they equipped him with false letters, false maps, all sorts of things and floated the body ashore with full of information to mislead Hitler. Extraordinary thing to have done. It, it, both films are really, really worth watching. And um, it worked. Now, what was really striking for me was not only that this, this, this uh, Hugh Bonneville film has got much more detail than before, and it's based on a really good book as well. It's the fact that the Christianity of the story keeps coming through. The, it's not a Christian film. Really, it's not a Christian film. But somehow the idea of this person atoning for their sins, being forgiven, the word sins is used, um, that this corpse needs to have a funeral at sea, needs to have people praying for other people. When they're waiting for the, to hear whether the message has been received in Berlin, they are praying up at number 10. True story. And you think... That is remarkably different from the way the world works today, isn't it? And I think they've captured a move over the past 70, 80 years. We want the fruit, but we don't want the fruit tree. Jesus, they did. I'll give you another example. Probably the, the most popular book of the 20 and 21st centuries is Lord of the Rings. I'm going to walk into any bookshop... And about 20% of the book area is given over to fantasy novels, and undoubtedly the center of it is Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a deep and passionate Christian. Now, he didn't write Lord of the Rings as an allegory. He said he hated allegory. But behind the message, behind the plot lines, deeply built into the myths, is the Christian story. It comes through all over. Talk to me afterwards, I'll show you. Now, compare that with Amazon's current remake, which some of you will be watching, or some of your kids will be watching, called Rings of Power. It's got orcs, it's got elves, it's got rings, and it's got wizards. 
But there is no Christian deep story built into it. And it seems to be hollow because they want the fruit without the fruit tree. And Jesus is the fruit tree that makes Lord of the Rings work. And without him, rings of power just doesn't. Jesus says, I'm not that hard to work out. Why are you refusing to see who I am? Give you another example. We have got, I've spoken, speaking to two members of St. James this week who've both been converted from Islam. And the turning point, obviously, was Jesus. Now, does that strike you as odd? Because Islam honors Jesus. It talks about the prophet Isa. The Quran repeats several stories about Jesus, the great prophet. But it doesn't deal with Jesus in his own terms. It doesn't allow his version of himself to come center stage. If you, we're in Luke's gospel, aren't we? Luke opens by telling us about the virgin birth of Jesus. The Quran explicitly denies that. Towards the end, it will tell us about the death of Jesus on the cross. The Quran explicitly denies that. It will finish by talking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the Quran explicitly denies that. Or crashing center. Turn over just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 10, verse 22. I've missed the one I want to have, which is about Jesus being the son of the father. The transfiguration will give it to us. I've lost the exact reference, but you've got the transfiguration where Jesus is in his glory. Let's go for verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Jesus being God's son runs right the way through Luke's gospel. The Quran explicitly denies this. In fact, if you go into uh, the big, what was the big church in the middle of Istanbul, Hagia Sophia, for a thousand years it was the biggest church in the world. You go in there, it became a mosque and a museum, and it's a mosque again. When, you, when you're there at the time of prayer, curtains are drawn so that you cannot see the mosaics of Jesus and Mary. You cannot see them. Because they want Jesus, but a little bit of him. They have trivialized him. They've tamed him. He's just a prophet. They want the fruit without the tree. How comfortable are you feeling, friends? How uncomfortable are you feeling? If you're here or you're watching online, have you, are you feeling the force of Jesus' question? Why do you refuse to work me out? I'm not that difficult. Do you feel the edge of Jesus' word? Hypocrite? I said there were two questions. That was the first one. Why can't you work me out? Here's the second one. We're back in chapter 12. Jesus said, why don't you judge for yourself what's right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. 
So what you've got here is something we don't quite have these days, but it's a debtor's prison. Somebody be taken into prison for debt, and they can't get out until they pay. Now, we don't have that, but I'm darn certain in today's economic climate, you can recognize the principle. The credit card statement comes, and it makes you wince. And so you can't pay it off this month, and so it mounts, and it mounts, and it mounts. And you reach the point where you're trying to pay off one credit card against another, and, you and it all comes up, and you can't see what to do. What is the sensible thing to do? Everybody will say, talk to the credit card company. Talk to them, make terms with them. Your mortgage has gone up. Your rent has gone up. You don't know how you're going to be able to afford it. What does everybody say? Talk to the building society. Talk to your landlord. Don't pretend it's not happening. Sort it out with them. And Jesus says, well, you know what to do with Barclay Card. You know what to do with the Halifax. Why on earth are you refusing to do that with God? You can recognize it with your bank account. Verse 58, why will you not be reconciled to God? It's a hard but very simple question. You see, the moment you stop trivializing Jesus, you say, okay, Jesus, in your own words, what's the core truth? What is the absolute center? And it's very simple. He says, each of us is facing judgment with God. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be in the middle of this talk, but it will happen. It might be the day you die, it might be the day that Jesus returns. It might be today, it might be tomorrow. But it's a very simple reality. And in consequence, the wise thing to do is to come to terms with God. Come to terms with the fact that you are massively in debt to him, for what he has given you and what you have done, and there's no way you can pay. You need to come to terms with his judgment and therefore come to terms with our guilt. Because we are without excuse. You must be reconciled, says Jesus, to your heavenly creditor. You must be reconciled to your heavenly judge. You must be reconciled to God. You say, Chris, I want to talk about justice and inequality and climate change and sex trafficking and corruption. And Jesus says, all in good time, those are the fruit. But they are the fruit which grows on the fruit tree. First things first. You know how to sort out your credit card debt. You know how to sort out your mortgage. I'm going to teach you how to sort it out with God. Don't be distracted, he says. You can work out which MPs are voting for Rishi and which are voting for Penny and which are voting for Boris. You can follow maps with the Ukraine. You are not silly. So you can work it out, he says. What do you think about me? And you say, okay, Jesus, if I need to be reconciled with God, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, I'm glad you asked all the way through Luke's gospel, I am heading to die for you. Go back to that image of Banksy with the two hands and the shopping baskets. 
His hands nailed to a cross. What was he doing that for? What are in the bags in his hands if it's not a bottle of Prosecco? What does Jesus bring when he dies in his own terms? Flip with me to the very end of the story. Again, this is Jesus in his own words. To Luke chapter 24, (coughs) page 1062. He said this, verse 46. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. I will die and rise again to bring forgiveness. People repent and that message will come across the whole world. Our debt to God is paid. That's what's in one shopping basket. We are reconciled to our creditor. Our guilt is removed. That's what's in the other hand. We are reconciled to our judge. So, talk to Banksy. Answer his question. If Jesus didn't come to bring Mickey Mouse and candy canes, what did he bring? I don't know who needs to hear this today, but some of you need to know that Jesus came to say, your debt with God has been paid. Whatever you think is due to him, whatever you think you owe him, your debt is paid. However you've lived your life, however you feel you are, however far you feel you miss his standards, Jesus says, I bring in in my hands debt paid. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but somebody does. In the other hand, he says, guilt removed. Guilt forgiven. You have a creditor, but your debt has been paid. You have a judge, but your guilt has been removed. And that is what Jesus brings in his hands for you. And if you need to think through that as simple as thinking about those two bags that Jesus holds on the cross, just put your debt, put your guilt in the hands of Jesus and his death covers it. You might say, Chris, you've moved way too fast. Way too fast. That's fine. That's good. We have got some copies of Luke's Life of Jesus that we're looking at. We've got them at the back on the uh, Hello and Connect table at the back. Pick one. Take it away. They don't cost us more than pennies, so take one away. And um, use a pen, underline, scribble stuff. Come back to us. Mark and I would love to talk to you. And if you're thinking, no, actually, this is me today, I do need to say that I need to stop messing around with Jesus, stop trivializing him, treat him on his own terms, and say, Lord Jesus, pay my debt, remove my guilt. Then I've got something else for you as well. A little booklet called First Steps for New Christians. Again, you can pick it up on the table in the back. Um, It's a little leaflet that will help you understand more about Jesus. But if you're at that moment, I'm going to pray a prayer now, and I'm going to invite you in the silence of your heart, 
to echo it with me. Jesus, I can realize that I have made you way too small. I've wanted the truth, the fruit, but not the fruit tree. I've wanted all sorts of things, but I haven't wanted you. And I now realize I need you. Because at the deepest level, I can see that before God, I have debt I cannot pay and guilt I cannot clear. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that by your death, you promise that you have removed my guilt by taking it on yourself. You have paid my debt by your, out of your infinite goodness and love. And I ask that you will help me to live as someone who knows that my debt has been paid, my guilt has been forgiven, and I have a Lord and a Savior 